let's have an honest moment right now. We're all scared of what goes bump in the night. <laughs> Especially when you're at home, maybe in the comfort of your bed, feeling safe and secure. Because it's possible that noise you just heard means you're not as alone as you thought. That noise could mean someone has just invaded your home. And that is horrifying. <laughs> Today's list will terrify you enough that you'll never forget to lock your doors and windows and definitely set that alarm. Hey, all you weirdos, welcome to Crime Countdown, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Ash. And I'm Elena. Every week, we'll highlight 10 fascinating stories of history's most engaging and unsettling crimes, all picked by the Parcast research gods. This episode, we're counting down the top 10 horrifying home invasions. This one stresses me out. Oh, yeah. The idea of someone in my space, and especially in my personal space, is a straight-up nightmare to me. I don't even like to be hugged too much. Nope. So someone just invading my space with, like, a malicious intent behind it is something I literally can't deal with. Yeah, no. 100%. No. I also have this really ridiculous fear. I think I've mentioned it <laughs> I before. I know exactly what you're going to talk about. I always feel like someone is going to break into my home through the vent system because <laughs> like I live in an apartment and it terrifies me because like I've never experienced a break in but I've taken a lot of precautions in every other way possible like you can't get in through the door we have like a little thing in the sliding glass window like you can't get in that way but what am I supposed to do about the vents but how are they going to come out of the vent is what I need to know they take it off the can they, they fit through it yeah, they, they've been fasting. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, there you go. I don't know what to tell you to do about the vents. I don't know I what really to tell don't. myself. I've always thought break-ins and home invasions specifically are like so sinister. Mm -hmm. They have just such a different like vibe about them. The idea that someone can literally enter your home where they have no idea what or who is inside of it and they can do it without fear on their part is just mind-bogglingly evil. Mm-hmm. I remember my old criminal justice professor who was like a cop, I think like a retired cop, like drilled into our heads was like, never confront someone who is in your home in the middle of the night. No. Because anyone who does that is scarier than you can even imagine. Yeah, like jump out the window. Yeah. Mm -mm. Well, Elena has five brazen home invaders and so do I, but neither of us know which strangers will be picking the locks tonight. Let's start the countdown. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. 10. I'll start us off with number 10, the Wonderland murders. July 1st, 1981, in a townhouse on Wonderland Avenue in Los Angeles, occupied by the Wonderland gang, four people were brutally bludgeoned to death with a pipe. It was a home invasion many say was an act of revenge. 
The only real identifying evidence was a bloody handprint left behind by porn star John Holmes. Wow. This story is wild. Sounds bananas. So the story that's often told is that the Wonderland gang pulled off their own brutal home invasion and robbery two days earlier at a nightclub owner's home and died in an act of vengeance. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's the story that's told. Those who were at the crime scene said it was worse than the crime scenes that the Manson family left behind. How is that even possible? And if you don't know how bad those are, I don't suggest you find out. Those they were are real bad. That's bleak. It got a ton of attention because it involved porn star John Holmes, the supposed inspiration behind the film Boogie Nights, which I didn't know that. I've never heard of that. Okay. <laughs> Well, they saw him wearing stolen jewelry from the drug dealer's house and made him lead them to Wonderland. Oh. He was also tried, but acquitted. This case remains unsolved. Does it really? It does. Although police have said they know who did it, they just did not have sufficient evidence to bring charges, which is terrifying. Yeah, that sucks. We know who did it, but we can't bring him in. Sorry. The house on Wonderland is said to be haunted. Obviously. Perhaps by one of the victims. Duh. Some speculate that the spirit belongs to Holmes, who passed away from AIDS-related complications in 1988. I feel like he wouldn't stay there. No, I feel that way too. Yeah, no. Nine. At number nine is the kidnapping of Denise Huskins in Northern California. Shortly after midnight on March 23rd, 2015, Denise and her boyfriend Aaron were asleep when Matthew Muller broke in, bound them, drugged them, and left with Denise. The story then gets more terrifying, but also gets complicated because investigators continue to think it's all just a hoax. Oh, whenever these things happen and they turn out to be a hoax, it freaks me out more. It's like Gone Girl. Yeah. At the end, you're just like, hua? Hua? So Matthew Muller takes Denise to his parents' vacation home in South Lake Tahoe, where he assaults her and then demands $17,000 as a ransom. That's a lot. But the story gets a lot of attention. He freaks out and then just drops Denise at her parents' home two days later. And is like, I'll call you later, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Like what? She reports it all immediately, obviously. But the Vallejo Police Department had already decided the couple was working together to concoct an elaborate hoax, despite evidence of Mueller being involved, including being suspected in not one, not two, but three previous home invasion attacks. Oh my, this is kind of his thing. It is, he's like a career home invader. In June that same year, actually, he was still free due to the investigator's negligence and he broke into another home and attacked someone who fought back. I see a pattern. Same, he fled, but he left his cell phone behind, which obviously was used to connect him to Denise's kidnapping, whose story was not made up (gasps) after all. Can you imagine police just don't believe you and you were literally kidnapped? Yeah. No. That would be the worst thing imaginable. No. Other details that make this whole thing bizarre are that Denise and her boyfriend say they woke up to a flashing strobe light and red laser pointers. Muller was apparently dressed in a black wetsuit. And according to a Wired article, he was actually using a super soaker as a gun. Stop it. I'm not kidding. 
An affidavit also confirms that the intended target was actually the boyfriend's ex-fiance, who had moved out the previous year. So she wasn't even the target. Was it that so bananas? Stop. Eight. Number eight on our countdown of horrifying home invasions is when Beatle George Harrison fought off his attacker. In December 1999, former Beatle George Harrison and his wife Olivia were attacked by intruder Michael Abrams, who stabbed Harrison in the chest multiple times. But Harrison and his wife were not about to be murder victims, and they fought back. Oh, I love it. In the middle of the night, Olivia heard glass shatter and woke up George. That's my nightmare. Just hearing glass shatter somewhere else in my house in the middle of the night? No. Yeah, that's terrifying. So George, of course, investigated the noise. He found a broken window, and then he smelled cigarette smoke. Ew, that's so eerie. That's horrible. George looks down the stairs and spots the intruder holding a knife and a sword that he broke off a statue in the Harrison's mansion. I'm sorry, excuse me, what? That's right, holding a knife and a sword. And that a cigarette? removed from a statue in the house. Bongers. George tried chanting, Harry Krishna, Harry Krishna, in an attempt to distract Abrams from attacking, but the intruder charged up the stairs. With a knife. With a knife and a sword. And a sword. He's got a sword. <gasps> His wife, Olivia, Fought Abrams off using a fireplace poker and a lamp. Which, I like, love Olivia. They were like essentially just fencing in the hallway. They were Mr. and Mrs. Smith right now. Like Unreal. They just locked right into whatever they had to do. At a court hearing in 2000, Harrison describes that he heard his own lung deflate and believed he was about to die. Dude. Yes. What? Yes. Abrams's motive was to murder George Harrison. He believed that he was possessed by Harrison and God wanted him to kill the former Beatle. I have so many more questions. Why do people always want to kill the Beatles? I don't Stop. know. Stop. Just get groovy, Leave man. Leave alone. Also, I feel like they definitely should have like renewed their vows after that. Oh, yeah. Seven. At number seven this week is the disappearance of Evelyn Grace Hartley in 1953. Evelyn Hartley showed up to a babysitting job with textbooks and plans to study and make some extra money while most of the rest of the town of La Crosse, Wisconsin went to the big homecoming game. Within a few hours, she was abducted and never seen again. The call is coming from inside the uh, house. That's exactly what I was thinking of. So scary. Evelyn wasn't even the normal babysitter for the Rasmussen family. Their usual babysitter was also at the homecoming game. Ooh. So she wasn't even supposed to be there that night. Ooh, chilies. And it's important to note that the toddler she was looking after was completely unharmed. Okay, thank goodness. Right, okay, so let's get that out of the way. There's that. Every door in the house was still locked, except for a basement window where the screen had been removed and a short ladder was inside the basement below the window. 
I hate that. I was waiting for your reaction because I knew you were going to say something like that. I was literally trying to get my breath because I'm like, <gasps> it's like John Bonet. It really is. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yes. I hate this so much. It only gets worse. So take oh, another deep it's breath. It's like a monster in the basement. I know. Ugh. Evelyn's body was never found, so it's unclear what happened to her. But according to the Charlie Project, her case has been classified a, quote, non-family abduction. Ugh, and I hate this. One theory actually involves Ed Gein. Stop it. He was known to be in La Crosse, Wisconsin, very near that same house at the time of her disappearance. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you hear that? It's the sound of me and everybody who just listened to this diving down the rabbit hole of that. Right? What? Six. Also on our list at number six, the Axeman of New Orleans. One of the most famous unsolved cases from the early 1900s involved the Axeman of New Orleans, who late at night would break into grocery stores where the owners, mostly Italian-American families, lived. Then he would use the victim's own axe to bludgeon anyone he came across, usually in their beds. Terrifying. This one's really scary. I really just need to go. I was just going to say, do I have to start this off by going? Yes, I do. Yes, you do. The string of crimes that the Axeman is most remembered for lasted just under one year from May 1918 to March 1919. Yeah, he went wild. He just went crazy. Similar attacks dating back to 1910 could have been the Axeman. It seems his killing spree went until possibly 1921 outside of New Orleans. Ooh. Many modern serial killers have had letters published. We know that. Mm -hmm. The Axeman had a letter published in the Times-Picayune all the way back in March 1919. It's literally my favorite letter of all time. It's a pretty great letter. Like, I hate to say that. In the letter, he said he would be out stalking the following Tuesday night. But he would spare anyone who was playing some sweet jazz. Just play some jazz and you'll be safe. He didn't attack that night. Didn't he also say he was writing from hell? Yeah, I think he did. I think that's my favorite Was that part of it? Yeah. Miriam Davis, an expert on the case, actually believes this famous letter might have been written by a musician. Just the letter, not the murders. I don't think so. I think he wrote it. And I remember seeing like a theory about that, that they were like, maybe it's a musician who just wants everyone to listen to jazz. No, I because I think the Axeman would have killed that night otherwise. He seems jazzy. He is jazzy. He seems like he's into it. Several of the Axeman's victims survived despite very serious wounds. Yet the killer was never identified. One of the great unsolved mysteries. I love that the Axeman was on there. I'm really excited that he was on there. I also wonder if why he was never identified is because it was just like so, so long ago. I don't know. The whole case is such a crazy one. It is. It's very like, it's got a lot of like Jack the Ripper vibes to it a it little does. bit. It does. And also it's got like a coven vibe to it because they it does. They added that into yeah, their Yeah, they did put it in there in season. American Horror Story. But so far, these are terrifying me. Absolutely horrific. And making me happy that I have a home security system. Same. Let's keep going. Wayne Simmons spent 27 years undercover for the CIA. When he retired from spy work, he got a big break. Terrorism analyst on Fox News. Then he met Kent Clisby. So I'm a real CIA guy. This is total nonsense. 
I'm Alex French, and I'm here to figure out who's telling the truth. Was Wayne Simmons a spy, or was he nothing but a con man? Imposters is a Spotify original from Parcast. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. Five. All right, let's jump back in with number five on our countdown of horrifying home invasions. Starting off the second half of our list, BTK. (laughs) Dennis Rader's string of home invasions. Well, between 1974 and 1991, Dennis Rader, who nicknamed himself BTK, murdered 10 people in and around Wichita, Kansas, typically by breaking into their homes and then binding, torturing, and killing them. The worst. Absolute worst. Lo and behold, though, Rader was a family man. Sure was. Had a middle-class job and was president of his church council. Oh, we know. Just an everyday guy. Floppy disk knows that. Oh yeah, the floppy disk knows all. He also worked for ADT, the security company, from 1974 to 1988, which was a large portion of the time that he was committing his murders. He got all his information. Well, that's the thing. I think it was a project for him, another project. It started in 1974 when Raider murdered four members of a local family. Raider said he referred to his intended targets, whom he often stalked for some time before attacking them, as projects, like Gross. I just said. Nasty. He also carried what he called a hit kit of supplies. Stop it. Like, get out of here. Many described Raider as a control freak. I bet that he was a Capricorn, but I don't know. Hey, no. Well, you know. I don't know that, but I'm going to say no. <laughs> as a Capricorn, no. Well, he frequently let his victims think that he was going to let them live, only to see the fear return as he began strangling them again. That's a whole nother level of evil. Yeah, he's super duper evil. Raider himself called police to inform them of his December 1977 murder of Nancy Fox. In 1985, he moved things closer to home and murdered his neighbor who lived just six doors down from him. Like absolutely wilding. He went hard. He really did. In 1979, one woman received a letter from Raider who claimed that he had waited for her inside of her home, but gave up and left before she arrived. I hate that. Also, imagine receiving that letter. No, I would I will move not. across the world. I would go colonize Mars. Yeah, well, that's but, what I would do. But get this, Elena. I don't know if you know this. In 2005, Dennis Rader gave himself up, basically. Yeah, he sure did. (laughs) And was arrested and pleaded guilty to 10 counts. Because of a floppy disk. We loves a floppy disk. Four. Landing at number four this week is the Tate and LaBianca murders committed by the Manson family. The Manson family went on a two-night killing spree in Los Angeles in 1969, first invading the home of actress Sharon Tate on August 9th, where they murdered her and her four friends. The next night, they invaded the home of Leno and Rosemary LaBianca and murdered the couple. For Sharon Tate and her guests, it was a case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time, which makes this so much worse. Mm -hmm. Charles Manson had been to that home on Cielo Drive before she lived there. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't even, ugh, it just freaks me out. It's so scary. Manson knew record producer Terry Melcher, who lived there before leasing to Tate and her husband, director Roman Polanski. So he was going for someone totally different. Right. I hate it. And was it Roman Polanski was away that weekend? He was. Yeah. Yeah. 
The killers fairly easily got access to the home by climbing over the front gate. The Tate murders were unbelievably gruesome. Oh yeah. But some say it was the LaBianca murders that really freaked people out. The whole thing is terrifying. Horrifying. Tate was famous and in a high-profile relationship. Some maybe thought they were targeted, but the LaBiancas were seemingly just random victims. Mm -hmm. It took over four months for authorities to tie the Manson family to the crimes and to take them into custody, which must have been a terrifying four months. Right? Because everybody in out there was just like, am I next? It seems random. Yeah. Yeah. The Manson murders really hit on the fears that no matter what your stature in life, you may not be safe in your own home. And in the 60s, when the free love movement was shattered by this, it imprinted very deeply on us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Three. Number three on our countdown of horrifying home invasions is the Golden State Killer. Joseph D'Angelo, known as the Golden State Killer, is horrifying for the sheer number of crimes he got away with before being arrested in 2018 when he was in his 70s. He's associated with over 10 dozen break-ins, approximately 50 rape cases, and 13 homicides. That's unreal. His numbers are out of this world. <sighs> First, he would case the home when no one was there. When he left, he would leave a window unsecured for an entry point later on when he returned to attack his victims. The first murders linked to D'Angelo in 1978 strangely occurred outside and were unlike his other murders. It's actually believed that they discovered him as he was plotting a break-in and caught totally off guard, he shot them. Ugh, so yeah. just wrong place, wrong time. Again, typically he woke his victims up from their sleep. If it was a couple, he would make the woman tie up her partner and then he would place dishes or a perfume bottle on the man's back and threaten to kill them both if he heard the dishes clatter. To me, that is one of the scariest parts of this case. Also, how does your brain come up with that? To think that you're laying there completely helpless with plates on your back while something terrible is happening to the person you love. And if you try to do anything about it, something terrible is going to happen to both of you. You're sitting there like, that's an impossible choice to make. If Abs I move, yeah. is he going to kill her? If I don't move, is he going to kill? Like, there's no good choice there. It is the biggest catch-22 in Talk about torture. History. Torture. Yeah. The men would have to lie perfectly still while D'Angelo tied up and assaulted his female victim. And there were many surviving victims, but he often wore a mask and blindfolded the people he attacked. And he also spoke through clenched teeth, presumably in an attempt to disguise his voice. That's too clever. Too clever. That's so scary. Ugh. If the Golden yeah. State Killer is only number three, yeah. I mean, I know what number one is, but like, I need to know what number two is. I need to know what number one is. Well, it's going to be a lot. I got to know. Two. We're down to the final two spots on our countdown of horrifying home invasions. At number two is the Ketty Cabin murders in April 1981. In the old resort town of Ketty, California, unknown intruders entered Cabin 28 and viciously murdered Sue Sharp, her son John, and his friend Dana. 
Sue's daughter, Tina, was also missing, and her body was found three years later. This crime changed this small town forever. Everyone locked their doors after this. Good. The next cabin over, cabin 27, stood just 15 feet away, but no one heard anything. Isn't that the craziest thing ever? Bonkers. Like what? Bonkers. The original police work on this case was uh, a disaster. Yeah. An absolute disaster. The crime scene paints a disturbing picture of torture. The killers apparently took their sweet time. Which is so crazy when you think that like, how did you hear nothing next door? The victims had been bound with white medical tape and electrical cord, and Sue had been gagged. The location of blood pools and spatter proved their deaths were brutal. Mm -hmm. There were blood on the bottoms of their feet, suggesting the victims were walking around at some point. My brain won't, like, register it. No, because, like, why? Like, walking around with blood on their feet. It's so scary. After the bodies were discovered, three more children in cabin 28 were found unharmed in a second bedroom, which is the craziest part of this. Uh, Yep. They pulled them through the window so they wouldn't see the bodies in the living room. Oh, my God. And imagine they were waiting there, like, the entire time. Like, is anybody going to find us? Like, who's going to come help us? One of the children left unharmed in cabin 28 was the stepson of Marty Smart, who was one of the suspects. He and others were questioned, but never charged. Investigators believe as many as six people were involved in either the murder or the cover-up. Marty and his friends could possibly have done this. Yeah. When you look into this case, it's like, okay. When we covered it on Morbid, I was like pretty sold. Yeah, like I'm pretty sold. It said Sue was helping Marty's wife prepare to leave him. Marty even wrote a letter to his wife that said, I've paid the price for your love, and now I've bought it with four lives. And you tell me we're through? Great. I think that's actually called um, a confession letter. Confession. Confession. I think it's called that. Yeah. This case was reportedly one of the main influences behind the 2008 horror film, The Strangers. Others point out that the Tate murders probably also partially inspired the movie, but it's like a mashup. You were the first one to show me that movie, and it is my favorite horror film. It's so scary. It's terrifying, but, like, so good. Oh, I think it's so well done. Mm -hmm. Go watch it. The music in that. Goodbye. One. And that brings us to number one on our countdown of the top 10 horrifying home invasions. Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. Of course. Duh. Ramirez terrorized Los Angeles in a string of break-ins, sexual assaults, and brutal murders that occurred mostly over the course of a few months in 1985. Although the full extent of his crimes may never be known. Oh, I hate this case. I know. It's so much. The thing that makes his break-ins extra terrifying, other than the utter brutality, was the lack of motive or reasoning for choosing his targets. Oh, yeah. He was an equal opportunity offender. He was, because these people ranged in age, gender, and location all across the greater Los Angeles area, as well as Orange County and San Francisco. You could be anyone living in L.A. or the outskirts of L.A., and you might be attacked by the Night Stalker. As the LA Times put it, no suburban window felt safe from his intrusion. That's so much scarier. I know, right? Because at least with like, obviously like the Ted Bundy stuff is terrifying. Mm-hmm. Like, But you think of like guys like that who have like a very 
specific victim and you're like well if i have like even david berkowitz it's yeah. like even if i have like blonde, you know, hair, blonde hair i'm good i should be okay it doesn't always work but it gives you a little sense of relief but right. when it's just willy-nilly anybody there's no sense of relief you just have to move it's like billy says in scream it's scarier when there's no motive you're dead right <laughs> it's true well ramirez often snuck into homes that had unlocked doors and or windows and usually assaulted his victims when they were sleeping these break-ins were also especially frightening because they happened during the height of the satanic panic. There it is. And Ramirez's crimes bore symbols of Satanism, including pentagrams drawn in lipstick. That's very theatrical. Like, that's just too much. At his sentencing, Ramirez said, quote, I am beyond good and evil. I will be avenged. Lucifer dwells in us all. That's it. Like, that's really lame. You gotta chill out, man. Yeah, he needs to take it down a notch. That's it. Yeah. Like, okay. Just that's maybe, it, man. maybe try out for a role in a different play. Yeah. Like just, just go away. Yeah. Ramirez was famously caught and captured by ordinary yet brave citizens in East LA until police could arrive, and he was reportedly happy to see the officers because he needed protection from the angry mob. Nothing's better. It is. Nothing's I remember better. the first time I heard that case, and I was like, "That's how he got caught. That is how he." And it's phenomenal. A bunch of icons. Phenomenal. Oh yeah. His trial actually concluded in 1989, and he was convicted on every count, including 13 counts of murder and some 30 additional felony charges. He is one of the scariest of all time. One of the scariest and stinkiest. It's the two Night Stalkers, because the Golden State Killer is like the original Night Stalker. Mm -hmm. Scariest. Scariest. It's just the way they operate. It is. It's like waking you up when you're sleeping. It's all these weird... I hate it. I hate it so much. I really hate it. Sleeping is supposed to be peaceful. These were all, by far, the scariest home invasions that I can think of off I the know. top of my head. And the fact that it's nighttime and I now have to return to my apartment, I'm yeah. not really looking forward to that. Yep, not psyched about that. But everybody, lock your windows, lock your doors. If you have a security system, set it. Get one of those things to put in your sliding glass door. Yes, if you have a little patio, don't do that. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. I think they did a great job on this list. They covered it all. Well done, podcast research gods. Hats off to you. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another great episode. Remember to follow Crime Countdown on Spotify to get brand new episodes delivered every week. You can find all episodes of Crime Countdown and all other podcast shows for free on Spotify. Spotify has all your favorite music and podcasts all in one place. They're making it easier to listen to whatever you want to hear for free on your phone, computer, or smart speaker. And if you can't get enough of these creepy crimes, check out our After Crime Countdown podcast playlist on Spotify, where we've handpicked even more episodes about this week's stories that we think you'll enjoy. And if you like this show, follow at Parcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Parcast Network on Twitter. And if you like us, you can listen to our other podcast, Morbid. You can listen to us anywhere you listen to podcasts or follow us on Instagram at Morbid Podcast or on Twitter at A Morbid Podcast. And just like lock your doors and don't go anywhere until next Monday. Lock them all. Bye. Crime Countdown is executive produced by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It was created by Max Cutler. Sound design by Kristen Acevedo with associate sound design by Kevin McAlpine. Fact-checking by Cara Macerline. Research by Ambika Chotera, J.K. Heo, and Mickey Taylor. It's produced by John Cohen, Kristen Acevedo, and Jonathan Ratliff. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro. We're your hosts, Ash Kelly and Elena Urquhart. <laughs>